we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. And the, the focus of this is going to be in verses 18 through 20. I'm going to go ahead, though, just for context. I, I'm, I'm going to need to back up and read verses 13 down through 20. We're beginning our first week of the series, How's Your Soul? And some of the small groups, some of the CLGs will be doing a six-week series on How Is Your Soul. We'll be doing a three-week series from the pulpit. And uh, we're going to be addressing things. And the messages will not necessarily line up with uh, the heart of the material is the same, what you're going to go through. But what we do in each message may not necessarily be what you're going to look in at in your, in your CLG. But the scope of it uh, will certainly be uh, the same. And then your CLGs will just be uh, an added addition and blessing to the heart of what we want to do. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 18 through 20, um, I'm going to read verse 13, sorry. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I'm not done reading yet, but one of, the, one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible is in verse number 18. And one of those, it's one of those statements that it doesn't matter, as Philip was sharing, it doesn't matter what you're going through, what God has spoke to your life will never change. Because this statement right here, it is impossible for God to lie. I mean, that's an amazing statement. And if I was in an all-black church, they'd have been throwing handkerchiefs at me by now because that's such a powerful, powerful statement. I probably shouldn't have said that. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Can you say amen? Oftentimes when people ask us, are we okay? Sometimes we filter that question by whoever's asking. Sometimes we we filtered by, are they asking because they heard something and they just being nosy, they just being metichi, they just want to know. They just want to know, and so they ask you, are you okay? Sometimes people ask out of general courtesy. They just, they're not, they're not really expecting a conversation, just out of courtesy, they see you, hey, how you doing? And then they move on. And, but you usually have a tendency to know those that are asking that really are sincerely wanting to know how you're doing. 
It's more of a soul probing question, either because you know them, either because of the way they asked, either because of the, the manner in which they approached you, the manner they looked into your eyes. You know whether it's a really sincere, how are you doing? And, and depending on who it is, sometimes we do um, the acceptable Christian lie. I'm great. Good. Blessed. And, and I say acceptable not because it's right, but whoever you're saying to, going to accept it. Because if they don't, if they're really just doing it out of courtesy, then they just, okay, great, wonderful, and move right on. But there are those times when people ask you, and you don't feel no reason to say anything other than what's true, than what's right. And, and, and you might filter it and say, yeah, okay, well, maybe. But then when you really recognize who it is and what they're really asking, you may just honestly say, not really. Those moments when it's so hard for us as Christians to really be vulnerable, to let someone get behind what you express or get behind what they see. And, and usually when someone asks that, that you know they're sincere, you know they're not talking about outward indicators. When somebody that I really know cares about me and loves me, they're not asking me, hey, how you doing financially? They're not asking me, hey, how's it going in your house? How's it going with your car? They're not asking those outside indicators. You're still working out? Still going to the gym? How you feeling? They're not asking that. They're not asking those things. They're not concerned about it. They're concerned about the soul. How is your soul? Look at your neighbor and say, how is your soul? And the soul consists... I probably need to wait for somebody to answer, right? Y'all need to answer that person. This, since you're really asking, yeah. The soul consists of the mind, the will, and the emotions. It really is the very essence of us. The spirit is what animates us, makes us alive. It's what God uses to communicate and work in us. Physical, of course, we see that externally. But the soul is the mind. It's the will. It's the emotions. It's the inner us. When someone asks me, how am I doing? And they're sincerely asking me, how am I doing? They're asking, how is your mind? How is your soul? How is your will? How is your emotions? David defined that in Psalm 103, 1. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and then he defines soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. So David is saying, my mind, my will, my emotions, praise my God, my inner being, my inner me. So when we ask someone, how, how are you? It's your soul of concern. How is your soul doing, your inner thoughts, your inner emotions, your decisive acts? Because our soul matters. We've come to know, or you're going to come to know, without knowing the condition of your soul, without being honest about what's really going on with you, you can end up in a dark place. And if you get into a dark place, or even on the verge of a dark place, it's because there's some internal instability that's going on on the inside. 
That's not the place that God has purposed for us, nor is it the place that God has destined for us. There was a man in the, in the, in the Bible that we read about. His name was John. He was a he was a friend of Jesus, but he also was one that followed, followed Jesus. He was real close to Jesus. The Bible even talks about him as one that, that Jesus loved. And he wrote some things about Jesus in what we call the Gospel of John or St. John. But he also wrote some things in some letters to churches. And one of the things that he wrote after spending his time with Jesus was this. It was a prayer that he wrote. It's John 3, 1 and 2. He says, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. And you might notice the emphasis there, the points that he makes. He, he does say it's God's will for us to have good health. He wants us to have good health. I want you to have good health. We want to pray for you if you don't have good health. We want you to be healed. We want you to be physically well. We want you to have longevity of days as long as the Lord is with us. But he also encourages them that things would go well with them, that they're in a good place in life. Life in general is defined as being in a good place. But the reckoning of this, he says, what's more critical, what's more the reckoning is that inside stability and steadiness and security of your soul being well. In other words, what John is saying is it's a possibility that you may not be doing well physically, but I still pray your soul is doing well. It's a possibility that you may not necessarily have everything going in the manner that you want, but the real issue is how is your soul. And the the big idea of this message is that stability and security of our soul needs to be in the hands of someone that's greater than the turmoil that we can have in this life. It has to be in the hands of someone. Our soul cannot be in our hands because we're the ones going through the turmoil. It has to be someone greater. It has to be someone who's able to see everything, relate to everything, and able to bring our soul to a place of stability. All seems better in life when the soul is good. All seems better. I can tell it in my own life, those times or even days, if I didn't connect with Christ in the right way, didn't spend either adequate enough time in my devotion or didn't take the time to listen or didn't take the time to work through what God was saying, I can tell how that affects my day, affects my week. Because the soul condition is the thing that's most critical. Deep inside of what's going on with me, you you, you want to have a place of peace and you want to have fulfillment and satisfaction and rest and joy and love, a state of happiness. And that's what God intends for us. Think of it. The the God that we serve wants our soul to be doing well. And then that's not even the end of the story because the soul gets to go home, which is the third message we'll do in this series, and be in the place of total eternal bliss to never be interrupted. But the God that we serve still wants us to enjoy a place of peace even in this world of turmoil if our soul is at peace with him. Can you say amen? 
And what happens is, though, in life is sometimes things can take place and you don't realize how much it's really affecting your soul. What, what uh, Judah Smith calls soul surprises, things that happen. Uh, maybe, you, you know, maybe somebody jumps in front of you while you're driving and you react in a way that you think, why in the world would I react that way? Or, or you see a movie and, and, and you get angry at what you know the producers and the writers are trying to do. You know the message that they're trying to perpetrate. I remember one movie, and I won't tell you the name of it. It was highly acclaimed. I couldn't wait to see the movie, watch the movie, enjoyed every minute of the movie except the last 10. When I realized what they were trying to do, and I just wanted to jump up and scream that you didn't sabotage me and my money for this message. Just those kind of surprises, life experiences that are unforeseen and you see how it really affects you. Some things are tragic, betrayal and death. Some things are not as minor, athletic stuff or athletic events or teams. I'm, I'm really struggling with the Dodgers losing. I am so struggling with it. I can't hardly watch them. I can't, when they lose, I'm ready to turn the game off. So last night, Ari was at the house, Virginia and Ari was playing on the floor, turned the Dodgers on, they were losing. I said, Ari, will you, play, will you pray with Grandpa? She said, yes. So she got up. I said, just pray what I pray, okay? Yes, yes, Grandpa. I said, dear Lord Jesus. She said, dear Lord Jesus, will you help the Dodgers win? She looked at me and said, that's silly, and got back on the floor. <laughs> so, those soul surprises will put you in some embarrassing situations. We see it in... David's life, things that, that happened with him, and I, I, I love reading these things about David because, of again, the humanness of it, and a lot of it is in the Psalms where we're headed today. But David had some things that took place in his life where he actually lets us know he was surprised at how his soul reacted to this. One of them is, is, is when he had the men out when he was out on exile and running from Saul and they went out there and they helped Nabal. Nabal never gave them permission. They never had a conversation with Nabal. He never asked Nabal. It's in 1 Samuel 25. But while they were out there being on the run, him and his men helped take care of Nabal's sheep. They kept people from attacking and people from stealing, uh, stealing them and killing them and all of that. They did it just out of David's heart is, is what we get the impression. And they did it to the point to when it was time for the sheep shearing. And when the sheep shearing came, that's usually a big feast because that's, that's like the return on the investment. So they bring the sheep all to the, to the compound. They shear the sheep and get ready to sell the wool. In some cases, depending on what they're going to do with the meat, it's usually a big party because, again, it's, it's like a great return on the investment. David and his men had been out there for a period of time. They'd been watching over Nabal's sheep. So they send a message. David sends a message telling Nabal, hey, we've been out here taking care of your sheep. We've been out here protecting them, etc. I know you're going to be doing some sheep shearing. We're going to come on in and join you in the feast. Now, it's interesting if you take the time to read that David traveled with 600 men. David basically told a man, me and my 599 men coming to your house to eat, right? And, and by the way, you should let us come because we've been protecting you. 
Nabal sent messages back saying, I, I ain't got nothing to do with that David. I don't know a whole lot about that David. I know he's supposed to be some king or something, but I don't know nothing about him, don't know nothing about his people. They're not coming nowhere near my property. David instantly reacts and tells the fellows, put the swords on. We going down there and we killing everybody. And down they went, heading toward Nabal. Nabal's wife, Abigail, gets word that David is coming and he killing your husband and all the rest of us that live here because he's upset that your husband won't let him come to eat. Abigail rushes, takes some food, rushes and goes and sees David, gives him honor and praise for being the king and says to him, you are the king. You're God's anointed and appointed man. You're going to let this foolish man cause you to ruin everything that God has purposed and destined for you because you're angry with him for not letting you come to eat? And David said, oh my, oh my, you're so right. That was a soul surprise. He didn't know that that was working in him, that that kind of rejection would cause him to react that way. Y'all see see where I'm headed with these soul surprises. You can look at David again with the story with Bathsheba and the story of her husband Uriah. And David, again, without going into everything, David was in a position that he shouldn't have never been in. And because he was in that position, he'd done something that he never shouldn't have done with Bathsheba. And then he thought he could cover that up when he realized what he had done. Couldn't cover it up the way he thought he could cover it up. So he made a decision to bring the husband and hope that the husband would be the one he would use to do the cover-up. The husband had no idea what David had done and was not even going to even involve himself in what David was doing because he didn't have a clue. When David realized that the husband wasn't going to go along with the plan to cover up for his sin, he sent the husband back on the front line to get killed. Now, we could talk about the adultery. We could talk about the effect of that. All of that has a message in it. But it was almost nine months later before the prophet Nathan comes along and tells David, I got to tell you something. There was a man who just had one little ewe lamb, just one. He cherished that ewe lamb. And a man came along that had multiple Matter of fact, he had everything he wanted, and if that wasn't enough, he could have had more. And instead of him enjoying what he had, and even Nathan even says this, and even asking God for more, he goes and takes the one ewe lamb of the man and takes that away. David responds, who in the world would do this? Who would do such a thing like this? And Nathan said, you're the man. Oh, my. You see, it wasn't just the adultery with Bathsheba that David had kind of passed through. Not passed through necessarily. I can, Psalm 51 tells us that. But what hit him was the thought that not only did I go as far as to cover up my sin, but I had a man murdered in the process. That was a soul surprise for David. Y'all following along? We could talk about when David and his men was in Philistine territory. The Philistines had rejected them, told them, we're not going to trust you. We know you're going to be the king of, of Israel, of Judah. 
Right now, we're enemies with Judah. Now you want to partner yourself with us because you're having trouble in your own land. We're not going to have it. So David and his men had to go out and do some other things to try to meet their own provision. And when they got back to their place, their wives and their children was gone. This is in Ziglag in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And David, the men of David turned on him. And the scripture says that David was so down in a despair and a depression that he had to come to grips with himself to encourage himself. It was a soul surprise. The passage in Psalm 42 that Andy read, it's at a time when David has fleed from his son Absalom. His son Absalom has come, come in and because of his anger with his father, his intent to do destruction, he's come in, he's come into the palace. David has left the palace. The revolt of Absalom has, is happening. And David responded in a way that absolutely surprised him. He was surprised at what was happening with his son Absalom. That got him. But he also was surprised at how he responded to Absalom's death. It's in Psalm 42 that David records it. His soul reaction was so shocking to him. Psalm 42, 5, David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He didn't expect it. He didn't suspect it. He didn't understand what was going on on the inside or honestly why this was happening on the inside. He knew what Absalom was up to. He knew what Absalom was going to do. God had sorted everything out just like God had promised, but yet he's in this state where he cannot understand why is his soul in so much turmoil. 42.11, he says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Have you ever been there? Where you don't know why you're sad, but you're sad. Don't know why your heart is hurting, but it's hurting. Don't know why you're discouraged, but you are. 43.5, he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Whenever you get that to that point where you have these things that's going on in your soul, especially when you can't reconcile them, when you can't put a handle on them, when you can't figure out why is this happening, you can't pinpoint anything. You, you, money's fine and physically you're fine and marriage is fine and kids are fine. When you can't put a handle on all that, then what you have a tendency to do, since you don't think it has nothing to do with you, then you start questioning God. And that's what David did. The scripture says, day and night, I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me. David said, I'm just crying and crying and crying, not even eating. And my enemies are saying, where is this God of yours? Look at what you're going through. You can't even do anything about it. Don't even know why you're going through it. Where is this God? Psalm 42, 9, David himself says this. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why am I in this place? Why am I in this situation? Why am I dealing with this? Psalm 43, 2. 
For you are the God in whom I have take, take refuge. Listen to this. Why have you rejected me? Those, those times and moments when the mind, the will, and emotions is going through some inner turmoil and inner stability. Now, on the one hand, let me say this. It's not necessarily abnormal that we might have seasons like that. It's not necessarily abnormal. I, I do, and you, if you read the book or if you go through the, I don't know if this is in the study material, but I do like uh, one, one thing Judas Smith described greatly about this when he talked about his own soul. He said for him, oftentimes, it's like being on a roller coaster. Uh, on the one hand, you, you, when, you, when, you, when the roller coaster is going up, you hear the click, 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 and you're anticipated and excited about going up. You got the sensation, you got the emotion, you got the excitement, and you're on the rise. But you're going to hit that point where it's, whoo, where you go down. And it's, it's usually a scream and a shout and a holler, and I know I've said to my kids many times, why did I let you talk me into this? But life can be just that way, up, down, up, down. Here is the thing, though. The soul may surprise us, and it will, and it does, but the soul never surprises God. It never surprises him. He sees all, he knows all, and he understands all. And with that, he's the one and only one that knows how to stabilize us during those times. As a matter of fact, I'm here to tell you, if your soul is in any kind of turmoil right now, there is no stability or stabilization without God. It will never become stable. It will never become secure. The good that David did in asking those questions that he did, he admitted in so many ways what, that what he was going through was wrong, not wrong in the sense that he was going through it, but wrong in the sense of questioning God. But he also recognized ultimately that the one that he had to look to was God. We learned some things about that, and on the, on the one hand, we, 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 we understand this, that our, our emotions cannot be an accurate guide for us. You can't, you can't allow yourself to make decisions on emotions. You, you can't allow yourself, you can't, emotions can be good companions, but they're not good leaders. It's good to have emotions. They're good companions. You, you want to be able to cry when you should cry. You want to be able to laugh when you should laugh. You want to be able to be excited when you should be excited. They're good companions. They're good to have in life, but emotions are not good leaders. Emotions will have you making some bad decisions. When you're going through a soul turmoil, that is not the time to take out a loan. That is not the time to act on a divorce. That's not the time to get married. That's not the time to engage in a new relationship. It's not the time to hire a hitman. You don't, that's not a good time to do those things, to quit your job, etc. You don't do those things when your emotions are in turmoil. But the, but the second thing, though, that we learn from David 
is that the answer to a surprised emotion is hope in God. David says it several times. I won't read all of the verses, but I'll read one. You see it several times in Psalm 42 and 43. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And while you're in turmoil within me, watch this, his next statement. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He was able to talk to himself about the situation, but also talk to himself about the one that he knew was able to bring some stability to all of life. And, and here is the issue. And you don't want to miss this because when you hit these, there's either an either or an or situation for all of us. It's an either or. Either when you go through these seasons of soul turmoil, stuff going on on the inside, you can, you can write down the feeling words that you're going through, whether rage, anger, despair, depression. When you hit those times, either you believe life is meaningless and there is no purpose for our existence, and this is just the way life is going to be. I just got to get used to it. Life is a roller coaster. Nobody's going to turn this ride off. And all of life is like this. If you got that kind of thing going on, eventually you're going to be checking out. But then there's the or. The or is there is a God. And if there is a God, then he's invested in my life. And if he's invested in my life, he's watching over me. He's working through me. He's doing good stuff. Just like the sun and the moon and the stars and all of nature's in order, the same God that sets those inanimate objects in order can set my life in order because he died for me. Can you say amen? And so David personalizes it. After he talks about his soul, his soul, his soul, David then personalizes it and says, wait a minute. He is my God, and he is my salvation. It's in the personalization of that that we discover we can stand or we can walk or we can be on firm ground. We know that we have stability because he's the one that provides. He is my God, even in the midst of that, and my salvation. And what David points to is what the writer of Hebrews talks about, and that's an anchor. Someone that can stabilize our life. Someone that's stronger than us. Someone that's greater than us. Someone that can oversee the turmoil. We see in the scripture in Hebrews 6.18 where the Hebrew writer used this illustration. And most of you know what an anchor is. The funny thing about it, and there's a, there's a picture I think of a more anchor that we mostly see more common. The kind with the hooks. That's mostly what we see. But the truth of it is, or picture... But those are usually on big ships. And, you know, we, we live in Yuma. We got a river. We got a river bottom. So the anchor, that kind of anchor wouldn't work for us in Yuma on the river. You got to have an anchor that's more like this because it's able to grab the bottom. Am I right, Ethiel? You, you can grab the bottom of the river with this kind of anchor. But here's the thing, and this joke is, is heavy. I am not going to go to the gym tomorrow. I'm just going to do this and do this and, and build up. But... Here is the thing. This thing is heavy enough and strong enough that when it gets a hold of the bottom and grabs whatever it can grab in and dig into there, it keeps the boat stable. It gives it stability. As long as the anchor is holding, the boat's not going to move. 
As long as the anchor is hooked in, there's going to be some, some sense of security on that boat, some sense of stability. And it's not, the, it's not the guy who's driving the boat. It's not the way you stand on the boat to balance. The only thing that's keeping you balanced is this anchor that's holding that boat together. Y'all follow me on that. And here is what, here is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. He says, therefore, we who have fled, watch this, to Jesus for refuge can have a great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Listen, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor of our souls. Now, I want you to catch this in context because context is everything. This is written to Jews, over 200,000 Jewish Christians, over 200,000 years ago. And the, the meaning to them is relevant. It was relevant to them and is relevant to us. He's clearly letting them know that there's an, there's an innate need that we have, just like they had back then. The truth of this is universal and is timeless that our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions, we need security. We need to be tethered. We need to be anchored. We need to be secure. We need to be stable because our soul will have a tendency to drift. We'll have a tendency to drift into turmoil and chaos. And whenever the boat's not stable, then there's always a chance of capsizing, which again, very much represents our life. And what he's saying is the anchor is the agent. He's given them a picture. They understand the sea. They understand the water. They understand that. He's given them a picture that just like there's an anchor that holds that boat secure, when that boat goes through some unpredictable stuff and goes through the turmoils of life and all kinds of issues that can go on the sea, there is an anchor that will hold us. Now listen to this. These are Jewish believers who've come into the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been waiting and waiting for the message of the Messiah. And then the Messiah comes and he's proclaimed to them to be Jesus. They believe it. They accept it. They come to the conclusion that there is no other Savior other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They take him on personally. They make him the Lord of their life. And then all of a sudden, life starts turning upside down because everybody in the community that remained Orthodox Jews didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. As a matter of fact, many of the folks in the community thought Jesus was an imposter and he should have been crucified and he should have been killed. And now telling them you're believing in somebody that you think rose from the dead. But they went further than that. They started persecuting him. They started uh, hampering them economically. They started losing their jobs. They were removed from their homes. They couldn't serve in any kind of government positions. They couldn't go into businesses anymore. They couldn't even buy. They couldn't even trade. They were getting persecuted and persecuted. Why? Because they believed in Jesus, the one they believed to be the Messiah. And there was a thought by many of them that the only way to stop this is to go back to what we believe. If you read the first five chapters of Hebrews, you'll see the whole thing is about Jesus is better. It's a better covenant. It's a better testament. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than the law. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convince them, no, 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 you have the better. 
but because of the pressure that they're going through, the things that they never expected that would come upon their life because they gave their life to Jesus is battering them like waves on the sea. And they're being tossed and they're being thrown to and fro and they're thinking the only way to get out of this is to jump off this Messiah ship. We got to get off this thing with Jesus because that's where all the threat is coming from. And we got to go back to what we did before so that our life would be back to normal. And the writer says, no, 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 no. You don't need to jump off the ship because the ship you're on, yes, you're going through some battering and yes, you're going through some issues, but the ship you're on is honestly the only thing that's stable. It's the only thing that's secure because there's an anchor that's holding that ship and that anchor is the anchor of our souls and that's Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? And so he says, you cannot, don't give up on Jesus. And and then the question for all of us is just this. Do we have an anchor? Because I talked to you about soul surprises. I talked to you about things that can go on in your life that you may not expect, that can cause reactions. And I also told you that that could be a normal part of life. As a matter of fact, if y'all had LED lights going across your forehead, y'all heads are lighting up because you're thinking about things in your own life right now that's a concern or instability or security. And some of you might even be having the same experience as the Hebrews thinking, I need to get off this ship. I need to jump this. I need to make changes. I, 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 I. And I am going to tell you, you better not jump off this ship. You better not jump off this because this is the only anchor of your soul. And and here is the thing. The only thing that can give your soul stability It's something with the soul. Your retirement cannot give you the stability. Solid career can't do it. Lucrative business can't do it. Neither can people. You cannot expect to have this kind of security or an anchor through relationships. You've been living long enough to know markets crash. Life is a vapor. And can I be honest with you without offending anybody? People are fickle. And people are fragile. And people go through some of the same things you go through. And if they're going through the same things you're going through, how can they be an anchor for your soul? You got to have someone that's greater than the turmoil. You got to have somebody that's above all that. You got to have somebody who sees all that, knows all that, and is able to get right in your Kool-Aid and settle this stuff. You got to get somebody right in there. And here's the deal. There's only one that can do it. Now, you, you might say, well, you know, I'm not really a Jesus person. I'm not a, I'm not a God person. Okay. Okay. Then this is what I would suggest. You find you somebody who can relate to you absolutely, totally, and with familiarity because of your humanity. You find somebody who's lived among us and lived this life sinfully that did not experience the same things you did and yet at the same time lived in the same body and flesh as you did. Somebody who knows everything about you, who knows your heart, who knows your mind, who knows your depravity, and yet unconditionally still loves you. You find somebody who can transcend all of you, who voluntarily sacrifices life for your junk, 
for your sin, for your mess, and promised you eternal life that rose from the dead from, for you. So if you don't believe Jesus and you don't believe in God, just find somebody like that and you'll be fine. Find somebody like that, and I'll say, hey, you got this, but I'm going to tell you something. There is only one person who's ever lived on the planet that knows everything about me, lived a life, and walked through the stuff that I walked through, and came out of it sinlessly, and still said, because I love you enough, I'm going to go to the cross, take your sins, die for you, so you can live the life that I live. And it's not just here on earth, but it's here all the way to eternity. You got to have an anchor for your life. You got to have an anchor for your soul. And, and let me close with this. The best work of an anchor is done unseen. The best work. When I'm on a boat and the anchor is hanging inside the boat, it may be a pretty anchor. It may be an anchor plated with gold. It may be sweet. It might have cost a lot. But that anchor ain't doing me no good if I can see it. If I can see the anchor, it ain't doing me no good. The best work of an anchor is when it's not seen. And, and there's a story in Acts chapter 27. I won't turn you there, but, but you'll get the point. Paul is on his way to Rome. And the scripture says that they hit a big storm. And that storm was totally unexpected. Other, they, were, they were good at being on the sea. They knew how to read the signs. This storm was totally unexpected. They're out there on the water. Everything starts blasting the boat. Turmoil comes. And what they do is start to freak out. As a matter of fact, the writer of the book of Acts is a man named Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. In verse number 20 of Acts 27, Luke, the guy who wrote a gospel for Jesus, he said this, this storm was so bad, we all lost hope. That's the writer. Luke said that. And so while they're determining that this is not going to work, we're going to die. We got to do something. The storm is getting worse. It went 14 days, I believe the scripture said, without them able to be able to eat and all kind of stuff going on tempest. And they were ready to bail off the ship. And Paul says, hold on a minute. They started letting down the lifeboats. The storm was bad. There was a risk they weren't even going to make it on the lifeboats, which I'll mention that. Paul says, hold on a minute. He says, I'm going to tell you something. This storm is bad, but the angel of the Lord has stood by me. I saw him. He spoke to me last night, and he said, no one will lose their life on this ship. Hear this, if they stay on the ship. So Paul said, listen, I need y'all to do, drop the anchor. But Paul, we're in the middle of a mess. Drop the anchor. We're in the middle of Hurricane Harvey. Drop the anchor. You drop the anchor right here. And you, instead of letting those lifeboats down, uh, down, you cut those lifeboats. Don't even let those boats be something you can look at as an escape. Hear this. Get rid of the stuff that will make you want to bail out on Jesus. Just cut it up. He says, cut those lifeboats. Let them things drift away, but drop that anchor. They dropped the anchor. 
and every one of them made it to the shore safely. Not because they could see what the anchor was doing, because the anchor was doing the work in the storms of our life when we can't see it. Are y'all getting this? The anchor does the work when you can't see it because he's the anchor of our soul. And the best work he does is what I can't see. It's what I can't see. That's the best work he does in the middle of a storm. I'm going to close with this. I probably said that three times already, but this is my final time. There's, there's not just the security that we have with the anchor in the middle of the storms of life. There's the security of the anchor for eternal life for eternal life. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 18. I already read to you that said we flee to Jesus. He's a refuge. Great confidence. The hope lies before us because of him. But then he goes on to say it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I can't help but get emotional about this because I cannot believe what Jesus has done for us, not only as an anchor of our life and everyday life, but for eternity. And notice what he says. He says he's an anchor of our soul. And he says, having that hope of having an anchor of our soul, it leads us somewhere. Having the anchor of our soul, our hope in him keeps pulling us forward. The anchor is stabilized and that anchor is what keeps us pulling toward our hope. But then there's something magnificent about this. He says the anchor of our soul is anchored behind the veil. You got to catch this because hear this. There was only one person that could ever go behind that veil. And that was the high priest. Now, now the Hebrew writer says, I want you to get a peek of something. Because we've had priests that have went in and went out. Went in and went out. And every year you may be able to get a little bit of hope. You get up to, right up to the veil and you got to turn around because life has to go on another year. And then the next year, you get a little bit of hope because the priest is back there, but then when he finishes his work, you got to come out and go back through another year. But not when the anchor of our soul is Jesus because this hope going to keep on leading me right up to the veil. But the writer of Hebrews says, why don't you just take a peek? Why don't you look back there and you pull the veil and you see Jesus back there interceding for you. Not just once, but for all eternity. Take a peek behind the veil. The anchor of your soul is back there securing life. Whoa! Securing life for you not just in the storms of life, but for all eternity. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. He's the anchor of my soul. Wow! He's the anchor. He's the anchor. 
know about you, but if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I wouldn't wait another day. Life is full of turmoil. You need an anchor. And there ain't nobody else you can go to. There's nobody else you can turn to. There's nobody else that can give you security and stability other than him. We're going to sing this song about Cornerstone, about who Jesus is. Prayer teams will be here. Altars will be open. Whatever you need, you can come. If you want salvation, you can come. If you want to start a new life, Jesus will help you. If you need to be healed, he'll be here. Baptism with the Spirit, he'll be here. There's no reason for you to leave this place and not have an anchor, not have a surety of anchor. Listen to your soul. Listen to your soul. If your soul is telling you I'm in turmoil, your soul is telling you I'm fearful, your soul is telling you I'm in doubt, your soul is telling you we're rocking, the boat is rocking, listen to your soul and grab a hold of the anchor. Christ, the anchor of our soul. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to share you, to present you in a manner that only, Lord God, can be presented. You are an anchor. You are a great God and a great Savior. You're my God and my salvation. Unto you, O Lord, we give our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord. Altars are open.